Hey everybody, I have a personal friend of the show, Chris Forkner, in tonight to talk about slot machines, their inner workings, and their placement at casinos. Let's hit those jackpots. Hey, so uh, glad to have you here on Just Dumb Enough. That's the uh, the official name of the podcast. Uh, we're here to show the vast majority of people on Earth that they are not, in fact, the experts they think they are, and we're going to talk to actual experts like yourself. So starting off, uh, what is your professional title? My name is Chris Forkner, and I am a senior software engineer for a slot machine gaming company. Nice, and how long have you been doing that? Uh, if you include my internship, it's been a little over six years now. Wow, nice. Uh, what got you interested in this kind of specific work? So it's sort of a, I wouldn't necessarily call it like a failed dream project, but um, one of the reasons why I went to college in the first place is to do mostly like for game development. But then as I learned a bit more about the game development industry, I realized that in terms of like software engineering, it's very much a um, high demand, uh, low supply industry. So it's not financially as, um, I guess you could say, good as like other areas within software engineering. And um, yeah, so at least with having that background knowledge and taking specific courses in college related to game development, um, it ended up fitting pretty well with a, a local company for myself since I live in uh, Reno, Nevada and went to the University of Nevada in Reno. Uh, yeah, a local company called IGT and did my first internship there. Um, they really liked the work that I did, so then they ended up hiring me on full time. Nice. And is that like going to school for the, uh, the game development kind of version of uh, software engineering, did that transfer pretty easily? Yeah, so at least for in terms of game development, like um, for modern slot machine games, it's very there's a lot of similarities to like the more like traditional games. But the closest equivalent I would say is would be sort of closer to uh, developing mobile games, which is also funnily enough another place where there's a lot of uh, uh you could say somewhat shady uh, business practices on enticing players to play. <laughs> Yeah, I would say uh, the the microtransactions in general probably get a little iffy on the moral scale. Yep. But uh, yeah, with that, um, well, the other area where there's a lot of parallels between the two is also developing games for hardware that like you're not like running slot machine games on like a RTX 3090 and like a hyper-threaded Intel process or anything. Like we definitely try to do a lot of cost reductions within our hardware. So it means that we have to really make sure that the software for the games that we're releasing is uh, as optimized as possible. Okay. And aside from some of the uh, specific parts listed there, I know it's just mostly talking about running down to a uh, simpler system instead of something very high end. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And in terms of like the more like similarities between the two. So at least for the, the slot machine development that we do, um, we use a game engine called unity, which is pretty much just like a, like, um, 
don't know if uh, some of the other similarities, if you, you could think of as like the source engine or the unreal engine, if people have heard of those, it's pretty much like a, a variant of those, but it's, um, a type of game engine that could easily export to different platforms, whether it's like, a PlayStation, Xbox, Windows, mobile devices, things like that. Okay. So just a, uh, like a base operating system for making your game. Yeah, basically. And it's sort of like a, a sandbox and you could put whatever you want in it. And because of that, you could also make it as optimized or unoptimized as you want. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, uh, I can't imagine the unoptimized end gets too much usage, but uh, I'm sure there's some out there. Yep. Well, I mean, definitely with some of the timelines of game releases, there's some points where you definitely need to do the, um, uh, I'd almost say more of the, like the path of least resistance for getting things done, which might not be the best thing to do, but it's the thing you have to do at that time. Gotcha. That's kind of a, you hit the deadline and then afterwards you clean it up a bit. Yeah, generally. Okay. Was there a lot to learn kind of moving from the, uh, the general software development to this i'd I'd say like a lot of it is still like fairly similar across the two i mean um even when i was uh, taking classes in college i was like um well i had a few courses that were like the upper level like 400 level courses where you sort of got to pick the environment where you made things in so i had like a class where it's pretty much just like make a large-scale project and i was like all right well i'll make a game in this unity um game engine so at that point i think the game i ended up making is a um strange spin-off of angry birds but it think of it like being in 3d so it isn't just like on you're on a 2d plane you could like have the 3d plane so you have like the x y and z axis of like shooting your bird but um i also replaced the bird with a shiba inu so i called it angry doge there you go And yeah, I mean, that was definitely an interesting game because, I mean, the funny part about like game development as an engineer is like, for the most part, engineers don't have that many artistic skills. (laughs) So a a good way to describe a lot of like just engineers working on a game is using engineer art. That's like using like um, basic shapes like uh, capsules or like boxes or spheres for just getting the things there until we could get the help from someone who's a bit more artistic and good at like either modeling or art in general. <laughs> gotcha. You're like building this game and they're like, so what are these brown squares? And you're like, it's supposed to be wood. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So think of like Minecraft, but without textures. <laughs> oh, okay. Very simplex. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, like definitely that's one of the things like I've tried working on at least throughout my career, but it's one, of, I, I still I wouldn't say I'm like, very proficient in the art side it's just uh, i could make things look better than i used to <laughs> gotcha a little more time in the field mm-hmm. yep I, I learned how to make beveled edges that's uh, very good for uh stylization nice uh how long is the schooling for it generally to like get a degree so if it's uh at least for what i did uh through through college it's just a standard computer science degree which is like a, you could do the four-year bachelor's degree for that. But I have a bunch of friends who actually went through a two-year program for um, at a place called Full Sail, where that's like it's you technically are getting a software engineering degree, but it's very heavily focused around game development. 
And with that like two year accelerated program, I think you get like maybe a combined total of like a month off like per year as well, just because you're continually doing classes and it sounded like it was a pretty crazy schedule, but like funnily enough, it does get you like very prepared for the like traditional game industry, just because sometimes you might just be crunching for 12 plus hours a day and not having weekends. So gets you real ready for it. Yeah, they're like, have you enjoyed the uh, accelerated version of schooling? No, mm -hmm. you're probably not going to like this field. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and it's like pretty insane too, because I'm trying to remember the numbers my friend told me about it, but it's very much like a, I think less than 50% of the people in the program actually make it fully through it or something crazy like that. Oh, wow. That is a large attrition yep. rate. <laughs> Yep, and it's also a uh, private college, so it's quite expensive as well. <laughs> wow. So one of, it's one of those things where, I, well, I guess, yeah, if you don't think you're going to make it, hopefully you make that decision sooner than later. Yeah, you definitely don't want to make it into your second year and then be like, oh, I don't think I can handle this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Coming out of that, is there, I mean, obviously for the, the game developing side, there's a lot more hours on the standard schedule but if you said your average kind of software engineer coming out of school, what do their weekly hours kind of look like? Um, I'd say like at least for my role within like at the current company I have, we're pretty good about um, not doing too much crunch time. But like I definitely do like the very standard like 40 hour work week. But I mean, like most people working 40 hour work weeks, though, it isn't 40 hours of like full intense focus on the task you're doing but so i mean like in terms of like actual very thought intensive software engineering i maybe do probably close to four to five hours a day and then the rest of that is doing a lot more of like senior engineering things like uh checking up on projects um working a lot with management and at least specifically the role that i'm in as well I work directly with the game studios internal to our company since um, I guess, yeah, I'll back up a bit more on that too. So the team that I work on, we create the sort of like the base platform that the game studios use to build games on top of. So one of my roles for that is sort of the relationship with our customers, which is the game studios within IGT and just make sure that things are going good with them, helping them find like different um, problems that they have using our software, working with them on coming up with new features that they need for their upcoming games. What kind of pay is expected kind of like straight out of schooling to get a, uh, a job like yours? So like pay in, in terms of like, uh, like starter salary, more or less. Yeah. So at least when I started in... 20 it was yeah a little late 2016 ish when i was actually like a full-time engineer not just a intern or anything like that i believe i was in between the 60 and 70 thousand range but that was also yeah before a lot of inflation happened <laughs> yeah that's that's definitely occurred over the last couple of years yep and then at least for at the time too reno was still sort of in between the the medium and high cost of living situation sort of like most i'd assume like medium to large cities in the u.s but yeah definitely in the past six years since i've lived in reno cost of living has gone up 
I guess the metric I could think of is maybe like over 50%, just because I was looking back at some of the apartments that I originally rented when I first started working at IGT, which was like, I think it was a thousand a month for a one bedroom. And now they're um, renting those out for like 15, 1600 right now. <laughs> wow. That's a uh, large increase. Yeah, a bit. So I imagine if you were starting in the industry now, you might have a better starting pay. But I'd maybe expect something closer to like maybe in like the 70s to 80s range for a starting salary. Still pretty good starting salary, I think. Yep. Or if you want to be an absolute mad lad and be that guy that goes into software engineering in like San Francisco, like I've seen starting pays in like 130s plus. <laughs> wow. Or potentially more. Yeah. But I mean, you're also yeah, paying you're... for it by living in San Francisco or the Bay Area. Yeah, your uh, your three thousand dollar monthly rent kind of a thing. <laughs> yep. Um, if you were talking to someone going through schooling right now, would you have some kind of advice for them? Yeah, I'd say definitely. I mean, so with software engineering, like you could definitely do a lot with it. Like it doesn't have to be game development because there's also like ways where you. <sighs> Sort of, I mean, you, when I was going through it, I sort of had an idea of like the general direction I wanted to go to with software engineering, which is like, I want to make games or something like that. But then coming to the slow realization that while that is a possibility, it might not be the best financial decision I could make. Uh, I sort of made compromises with that. But I mean, I, I feel like that's sort of something that, depending on the person, might just be okay. Because I mean, I know there's definitely some like very smart people out there who make the decision I want to make games and then do that and then become very successful with that. But definitely it takes a lot of um, time and effort and um, yeah, well, yeah, mental effort, even just um, having to work the longer hours. But that's something where I'm hoping in the future starts to get better, uh, at least with some of the, well, not necessarily lawsuits, but a lot of like coming to light of how bad game engineering can actually be as a developer, just with like the insane crunch time and sort of toxic uh, workplaces, sort of like um, with a recent coming to light of like the Blizzard lawsuits and things like that. Yeah, and I have a little bit of uh, background knowledge in that, but I know there's been a lot of lawsuits over the years and a lot of allegations of like extreme overtimes. That seems to be pretty common, especially in like the, the video game development sector. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's sort of like what I was talking about, like at the, the start of the podcast as well, where it's a very high demand, low supply market, at least in terms of like being a game development software engineer. So generally the pays for that is a bit lower just because if it's something that you don't accept as an offer, then the person who put up the job posting knows that there's probably going to be like 10 other people who would be happy to do so. <laughs> so yeah. it's something where I say like intro level, it could be very brutal, but as you start getting seniority in the, um, the space, I think it does tend to get a bit better because you have a lot more leverage on your end with the relevant experience and um, yeah, things like that. Sure. Speaking a little bit to your company, is it just handle things within Reno? Is it larger to the U.S. or is it, I mean, bigger than that? Yeah, so at least the company I work for is surprisingly like a multinational company, which I think are 
main CEO headquarters is in like Italy or something like that now. Yeah, definitely Italy. Because yeah, I remember making a lot of jokes about the Italian overlords, at least in the the gambling space. Of definitely course. not the mafia. <laughs> So, um, yeah, with, like, the company that I work for, IGT, there's, uh, at least in terms of, like, the slot side of it, which um, is what I'm more familiar with, we have game studios, like, um, in a few different places within the U.S. Um, In Australia, we have a, I believe we still have a game studio in Beijing as well. And then a few across uh, Europe, we have... um, Sort of like the main second hub of the company is in um, Austria, in a town called Graz, which is, I think, Western Austria, because it's sort of on the other side of like the capital, which for some reason I'm forgetting the name of. So sorry to everyone in Austria. That's all right. I don't Uh, think I have an Austrian audience, but... Okay. I mean, you never know. (laughs) Maybe one day. And then they can, you know, come back a year from now and just leave a dozen comments. (laughs) Yep. Um, Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, there's a lot of, obviously, with that much going on across the world, uh, has that shifted fairly dramatically with the ongoing pandemic? Yeah, i definitely say so. Like, in terms of working, when we first started having, like, actual lockdowns and where, like, casinos basically just had to shut down just because they weren't allowed to have people inside, it definitely took a pretty big hit on our company. And we actually had to go on furlough for three months, which was not fun. But I mean, at least at that point, unemployment was like um, basically doubled from what it was normally just with um, what's going on with the government and everything. So, I mean, it definitely took a financial hit on me, but it was one of those things where, yeah, just had to get through it. I mean, definitely left a sour taste in the mouth of the company with that. But um, yeah, and even at this point... um, there's been, I'd say, a bit of attrition, at least within the casino software development side of our company. But um, we're hoping that that continues to get better into the future since um, we're starting to see now more like uh, hiring posts and things like that. So getting the people replaced that have been leaving. I says things return to normal. Yeah, somewhat. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I haven't been to a casino in a while. But um, I can't imagine they are, you know, allowed to be just jam-packed in most places. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how long casinos had to be shut down for, but it was probably close to like the six plus months or something like that. But as soon as the casinos were able to open back up, it was actually kind of funny because there was a lot less people going to the casinos, but they were having like somehow very similar cash flows from when well before the pandemic so there's definitely a lot of um i guess pent-up gambling rage or something like that that a few people had to get out (laughs) say they're like i allocate a hundred dollars a month and it's been six months and i'm gonna spend seven hundred dollars (laughs) today yep but then the problem with that too is at least in terms of like from the business size of from where i am they were making the same or close to the same amount of money, but with like half of the machines not running. So that um, didn't look too good, at least for the the short term future of our the company I was working in, just because we wouldn't be able to sell as many slot machine uh, cabinets. And that's a an interesting terminology when you say cabinets. Is that like the uh, the standard vernacular? Yeah, at least. Um, 
from what I know internally, like it might be different with different companies, but for the the large fixture with the the flashy lights and the slot machine games on them, we generally call those cabinets. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's also changed quite a bit from, uh, I guess, what people imagine when you you're watching, you know, Ocean's Eleven or whatever. Uh, physical slots spinning in a machine are probably pretty uncommon at this point. Yeah, so at least something that's like purely physical based doesn't really exist anymore unless you like go to a very small casino or something that's even like a classic style casino like i don't know like an old western town or something like that that still has like an original slot machine in it because pretty much everything now is like very digitized but we still do have some games that we have physical reels still within the cabinet itself but it also interfaces in with the game and everything and at least for the way that that works, too, is the game's math basically tells the reels, you need to stop at these positions, and then it goes through the entire spinning the physical reels, stopping one at a time at the correct stops sort of thing. Oh, interesting. So it's it's calculated way before you know the outcome. Correct, yeah. And that's sort of, at least in, in terms of how I would say 99% of all slot machines work on the market right now is as soon as you click the start game or, like, repeat bet button within probably tens of milliseconds your outcome will be determined and the rest of that is just presentation gotcha it's just the uh the bright lights and the the energizing uh visuals yep and then doing things like um anticipation like spinning all the reels but then on the last reel you could see it spinning for extra or even longer having a bunch of particle effects around it just because you have the possibility of hitting the big win on that but then 99% of the time it'll stop just a couple of uh stops away from winning the jackpot <laughs> and a lot of that's i assume kind of a just the visual like you almost made it yep because that's one of the things at least the the slot machine games do is there's a lot of enticing and helping with the player engagement by doing things like that and at least in terms of like the how the slot machines work like with their pay tables and the math behind them uh at least from what we've seen generally games that might not have as big of wins but you get wins more frequently tend to be the more popular games and is there like a strategic placement to that within a a casino yeah definitely because i mean in casinos there's sort of different sections to like the types of games you have like generally a lot of them are grouped up by like the the company that has sold those games but also like the type of games they are whether they're like the what people call like the penny slots where like each credit is just one penny but then there's also like the the high roller areas where like every single credit on that uh slot machine is like five ten bucks or something ridiculous like that yeah, that would definitely make a, a huge difference to sit at the penny slots and play all day for, you know, 20 bucks versus pay the next, you know, three rounds for 50 bucks. Yeah, but then it's, it's funny, though, because at least for the penny slots, like some of those games could go up to like, I've seen as high as like 800 credits, so like $8 per bet. So, I mean, you could definitely still spend a lot of money on those, but then the the high roller areas, those are games that generally go up to like... um each bet is maybe up to like five credits, but you could definitely like play a game where you're just betting on like the center line 
and that could just be $5 bets every time, which is funnily enough smaller than the 800 max bet of the penny slot. Wow. And you said, you know, like they're grouped together by the companies that make them or who installed them. Is there a lot of competition kind of internally to get, you know, new, more exciting machines placed over your competitors? Yeah, I'd say there definitely is. I mean, there's a lot of like um, intersection or, or sorry, what's the correct word for it? Intersector rivalry with like the types of games that they make. Because at least for the company that I work at, we pretty much had patents on any type of poker or kino style um, slot machine game. So we pretty much had a like 100% market share up until maybe five, ten years ago. But even at this point now, um, with other companies trying to break into that market, I think we still have like a 95% market share of that or something crazy, just because... The same people who play those types of like poker and kino games, like the IGT style and uh, I guess the way that they play. Well, and especially if you've uh, you've kind of gotten used to this specific machine, you know, you might have some kind of a, a draw towards it. Like this is my lucky machine, and if I play some sort of poker that doesn't look like this, I'm gonna lose. Yep, and f- funny that you say that because um. So my my dad he's a I'd say like a bit of a gambler like not like addicted or anything like that but he definitely has a lot of those things of I, which are very super superstitious about like exactly what you're saying like the specific cabinet or like the time of day or other random factors that don't actually make any difference to how your outcome is within the game itself but it's one of those things that is sort of like a the weird enticement way of getting players to play the games. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I had that happen once when I, I physically went to a casino, uh, near where I live and I opened the door for someone and they turned around and walked away. And I was like, did they forget something in their car? And they just got in their car and left. And, uh, I asked somebody about it and they're like, ah, it's probably cause last time they came in, someone opened the door for them and they lost everything. So they're like, they're not even going to risk it today. Mm-hmm. I think yep. that's like that's a that's an interesting superstition to live by. Yeah, well, I guess that's one way to. Well, I guess if you knew that was a superstition and you were like a close friend with that person, a good way to get them from stop gambling by just uh, sort of strategically placing people at the doors. Yeah, you're like I know they only like to gamble at five p.m., so we're gonna say we're going at five p.m. and then I'm going to make us late. <laughs> yep, that's funny, and a lot of the the technology going back to it has changed over the years. Is there like a large transition to smaller machines? Um, it sort of depends on like the type of slot machine you're making. At least uh, some of the things I could think of is like for the more like what we call premium style games, which are like games that are tied to sort of non casino IP. So I think one of the funny, like big IPs that we have at our company is like, um, Wheel of Fortune and, like, Ellen DeGeneres for some reason. Like, those are, like, the very, like, grand-looking, like, slot machines that have, like, insane, uh, I don't know, like, 80-inch, like, uh, screens on them, a whole bunch of, like, crazy spinning lights, and in some cases also, like, close to, like, well, I wouldn't say, like, the actual Wheel of Fortune wheel, but, like, 
scales of those like on the uh, slot machine cabinet itself. Those so are... like for the premium space, like, yeah, there's bigger is better in some ways, even though like a lot of what's behind that is effectively something that's the size of a PlayStation 2. Okay. As, yeah. Like the brain. <laughs> Cause I've seen the ones that, you know, they take up like the physical space of five, I guess the normal cabinet slot machine size and it's just a single game. Um, but I also remember, like, dozens of years ago, probably at this point, having, you know, a gigantic monitor at, like, one end of a bar top that lets you gamble. And now some of those things are, you know, the size of your tablet and they're just built into the into bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, at least in terms of IGT, for whatever reason, has, like, a very large market share of that for some reason, just because historically they were the first ones to do it. And it was probably another one of those, like, we had the... Um... Oh man, I just said the word for it. The patents for those types of things. So we pretty much own the market and then no one else could really enter into it just because people want to play the same things they've been playing. Yeah, you're fighting the nostalgia at some point. Yep. But yeah, I've definitely, I've seen some of that over the years change where uh, now, oh hey, every five feet, like there's just this, you know, tablet sized thing in the countertop and you can play that now. And, you know, it's not like, segregated cubicles in the back of the smoking only area yeah so definitely like in terms of like overall trends like there isn't things getting bigger or smaller it sort of just like depends on the product line and what makes sense for that because like yeah what you're saying with like bar tops you want to make sure you still have like a place for like the person playing it to still have like their i don't know bar food and like a pint of beer or something to fit next to them (laughs) sure keep them sort of sitting there and playing yeah, your your local bar is not going to invest in the twenty foot tall machine, but they will invest in the the tablets, so yeah. to speak. Uh, and then I guess as a byproduct of COVID, I've seen a transition to entirely cashless uh, payments now in a good number of machines, I suppose. Yeah, so at least before COVID, the market was sort of trending towards that, but it was very much accelerated by COVID being a thing and trying to still, like, get as much as you can out of the casino industry with, like, all the regulations about, like, uh, social distancing, spacing, things like that. So, yeah, it's one of the big pushes is having cashless systems where you could pretty much um, take, like, your... Well, I'm not sure if you could use like credit or debit cards, but you sort of like go to a kiosk, like load up your player card for that casino with a bunch of money. And then all you need to do is just like sort of scan that near the machine. And then, hey, you got a bunch of money on there. And then once you cash out your money, instead of getting uh, a ticket for it, sort of like uh, most places, you could just uh, put that money right back on your card. So the easier they make it, the more you're going to do it, right? Yeah. In some of that newer technology does including a touchscreen make it harder to work with you know repair or designing games for the machine so at this point having like uh touchscreen monitors at least for like the main game monitor has been like a industry staple for definitely longer than i've been in the industry so my guess would probably be close to like the 10 to 15 years mark since that's been like pretty much all slot machines have that so it's sort of like a thing where you basically can't get around it, so you have to design around it for things like that. But, um, I mean, yeah, definitely things like the touchscreen technology is something that 
at least in my time there has caused some issues just because there's a lot of um, things that you need to worry about more on a slot machine touchscreen than like your iPhone. Like, for example, if you press the wrong button, you might accidentally spend money that you didn't mean to. So there's a lot of like um, stringent hardware testing that has to go into like the touchscreens, which pretty much means that like they have to be like very good at being able to determine the difference between like a like finger touching the screen versus like a electrostatic discharge that accidentally causes a touch input. Oh, yeah, I guess that would be very important when you're looking at uh, someone's like wiping the dust off the screen and it instead bets, you know, max bet across all lines. Mm -hmm. Is there like a legitimate difference in some of the flashier machines versus some of the the more simple stuff as far as like the mechanics go? I'd say the mechanics are mostly similar across all slot machine games. Like the, the standard, like you're playing games with like the virtual reels on them but then a lot of the games have been trying to make themselves special by the things that you could do on top of that like baseline feature set so like some of the more popular games i could think of is like as you make bets you get like random bubbles that like go to different stops on the reel and then like convert whatever that symbol is to a wild symbol so that you have higher chances at getting bigger wins which I believe is called like a persistence feature of just like bubbles that sort of persist on the screen. <laughs> huh. Cause I know there's and, obviously people are going to play the wheel of fortune if they're, you know, a big wheel of fortune fan, but some people are going to like me, uh, I have zero ties to wheel of fortune. So I'm going to walk right by that. And I never know, like, am I missing out on the bigger payday or am I actually getting, you know, a better chance for myself? Yeah. So at least for that, like, um, Every game does have a unique, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is what we call RTP, which is a return to player percentage, which is like um, effectively the percentage of if a player was to, if it infinitely play this game, they would get that percentage of their money back. And within the casino industry, that usually ranges from anywhere between like um, 70 to like 96%. So that's sort of like the math behind the slot machine games is if you were to infinitely play them, you will eventually come out with less money than you started. Huh. There you go. But, so you want to aim the, for the, the systems that look like a little bit better frequent payout. Yeah. And with that, I know there's depending on which jurisdiction you're in, some of that has to be more like transparent to the player. I mean, like if you're just going to like Vegas or something unless you know a lot of background about the game or have talked to people about the game, you might not know how much that specific game pays out. And one of the things I actually think is like kind of insane is some of the producers for slot machine games could like play a game for, I don't know, like half an hour or something and then have a fairly, fairly like decent understanding of the payback percentage of that game to like within a 5% margin or something crazy. Wow just eyeball it yeah pretty much yeah with that and i guess it i mean if you just do that to sort of how much money you put in versus how much money you get out it sort of makes sense but like even like from game to game and the like amount of their payouts their frequencies like come up with a rough number which is insane that's actually that's really interesting 
It feels like one of those things, like if you put a, a number on the side that says like, oh, you're only going to make back, you know, 80% of your money, you'd think people wouldn't play, but they openly publish, you know, like, oh, hey, your chances of winning the lottery are one in 60 trillion and people still buy knowing that, yep. you, you know, your percentage of making your money backs point zero 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I definitely think there's some places, um, I think it's depends on where you go. Like if you're, I believe in a like Oregon, like, um, Indian reservation casino, there's like maybe if I remember right, this might be somewhere else, but like effectively like what you're saying, like, yeah, posters saying like, these are like basically the general odds for what you're going to get back. Like sort of like uh, numbers, like the RTP that I was uh, talking about earlier, which I guess that makes me think of something else. That's also probably very interesting. Is there a wide, as far as you know, is there a wide difference between uh, like municipalities and states as to who can operate a casino? Um, definitely yes to that because um, there's in general across the U.S. like um, you can't really have a casino out unless you have state regulation that basically allows for it. So, like, the big places that have that I can think of is, like, um, the Atlantic City with all their big casinos and then, like, the Vegas, Reno, and Nevada just because gambling's sort of, like, a staple to the economy for the entire state. And then outside of that, you might have, like, some cities or towns that sort of allow that. But um, next from the, like, states that have open gambling is the um, Indian reservations, which generally... I, I don't know too much about the, the politics of it, but you can sort of think of like Indian reservations as their own government that doesn't necessarily have to abide by everything within U.S. constitutional law or something like that. So they can make up their own rules and regulations about doing things like gambling or other like common stereotype is um, buying fireworks and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Um, it It hadn't even occurred to me, but when I was thinking about it, you know, there are places like reno and vegas and atlantic city that are very like prolific gambling areas and i hadn't thought like oh are you still only allowed to own these if you are you know native american and i guess the answer is probably no to most of that like in those areas it's just if you'd like to open a casino you need to be able to cover all the cost associated with it Mm -hmm. yeah and then like with the casinos in nevada a lot of that gets um taxed by the government which is the reason why they allow it in the first place and uh yeah makes is pretty much how the state government makes revenue yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense especially if you're like the hotbed of the u.s i think Mm -hmm. most people in the u.s and probably to some extent uh, the greater north america knows like oh hey if you're gonna gamble you need to go to vegas like that's just the thing like oh nevada is where you gamble um but like in oregon i believe it's exclusively native american owned and operated um and then thinking way back into my brain um i want to say there's a king of the hill episode where they, they talk somebody into opening a native american casino on native american land in texas and then the Texas bureaucrats come across and they're like, there's no gambling in Texas, like Native American or not. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised with my like um, 
knowledge of King of Hill that I don't quite like fully remember that episode. I want to say it's uh, John Redcorn is helped by like Dale and they, you know, get him a section of land because of his Native American ancestry. And then some guys who are like, I, I want to say they are a 64th Cherokee or something. And they talk uh, John Redcorn into building a casino there. And it is immediately shut down after he buys, like, all the machines from them. Mm-hmm. It's just immediately shut down because they're like, there's no gambling in Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, like, interesting, too, because I know I, not in every state it's sort of like that. Like, very much the the state government has, like, no hand at all in the native reservations and, like, sort of their governance. But I guess maybe in Texas it's different. Yeah, I, uh, I, got, I need to get some kind of a... I mean, eventually down the line, I'll get all kinds of government bureaucratic people and regulators or whatever to to come in and speak to that. And I'll have to remember to write that question down for them. Yep. Was the King of the Hill episode accurate? Yeah. Maybe I can get Mike Judge to be on the show. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, he I imagine in that writing of the episode, he had to do some research on it. But being that that was like probably written close to like what 15 to 20 years ago we'll see if he remembers anything on it right so long ago the more i watch some of those shows i'm like man this was a great show i remember back when i watched it and then they're like this show was produced in 2001 you're like oh no yep anyway back back off our tangent (laughs) i was seeing something just kind of giving a, a brief look around to some of what's going into casinos now. I saw something called a multi-game table. Um, Is there, can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, so I think what you're probably talking about is sort of like playing a game like a roulette or craps, like on a slot machine terminal or slot machine cabinet, I guess I would call it, but no one else would. Uh, Is that sort of like what you're talking about? Yeah, like... Um, it looked very strange, but it looked like it had, you know, like there was roulette built into it and there's these monitors and all kinds of like terminals where while you're playing roulette, you can still play some other kind of, you know, slot based game. Yeah. So that's, um, at least one of the things that was another sort of push from that's been accelerated by the pandemic, which is, uh, doing what we call electronic table gaming, So that's being able to, like, do the table games while being in your own separate little cubicle and not uh, spreading communicable diseases to each other. So with that, um, there's a few different types of, like, table gaming that you can do. Like, the most basic version, I would say, is sort of like the purely virtual table gaming where the roulette wheel or the, the craps table that you're playing on is all virtual and there's no, like, actual physical table that you're playing at. But the other version that um, exists right now is sort of a a hybrid approach to that where the game and terminal that you're playing on actually ties into like a physical like roulette wheel or craps table that is sort of like shared across all the different little terminals in that like, I don't know, I guess you could call it like a enclave or sort of like set of cabinets within there. Yeah, and I guess... Even thinking further into the future, I don't know if this has been in development or if people have looked at it, is there some kind of, like, 
you're going to play, you know, Dark Souls, and you're going to gamble money on it. Is there ever been a push to kind of make a a video game-based gambling system? Uh, I mean, there has been some, like, pushes towards it, but none of that has really been as successful as the, the companies make them wanted to be. Um, but yeah, so that's at least the terminology that we use within the industry is what we call skill-based gaming. So that's where you're playing a game and your skill has some influence to the outcome and potentially how much money that you make off of that game. So an example that I could think of that my company tried at one point was what was close to like a Candy Crush game. But then if you made like certain amounts of like... um like matches or like hitting the special candy crush symbol things like that are the wilds or something then you have like chance of winning like bigger jackpots or something like that which is something that i believe they fully developed but it's not something that i think ever went out to the field just because at least through like initial player testing it just didn't have that good of a performance review to it well i imagine that's hard you're trying to balance the you know what are the regulations around you know, certain gambling in different states and areas and, mm-hmm. you know, how much can you alter the, uh, what, you know, what can the skill play into it? Because you don't want to, oh, hey, we made, you know, Counter-Strike, the gambling game, and then you have, you know, a team full of the world's best players walk in and just clean out the casino. <laughs> yeah, because I think for those types of games, like the way that they're built is there are like, certain caps or thresholds that you can't get past where sort of you've like maximized your player skill to winning at that specific game. So I think, yeah, that's, I mean, definitely a big consideration because you don't want like, yeah, for like a specific game like Counter-Strike where you're just like one tapping people in the head and just making more money in on average than you're putting in sort of thing. Yeah, would casinos don't like losing money. Yeah, you definitely want to like you know find your level uh, playing field, where the yeah, the game is... escalates slowly from you know the ease of every hack and slash game, and then over time it gets steadily harder, and now you're at even odds, and then it turns into Dark Souls, and you're much more likely to lose because you have no more control over uh, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at least in terms of, like, general casino policy, most casinos don't, well, they don't make it outright illegal, but they highly frown upon or potentially even kick you out of the casino if you're able to gain any advantage over another player playing a certain game. So that's, like, the situation I could think of where it's, like, you're playing blackjack, but you're, like, have an insane photographic memory, so you're able to, like, do card counting and things like that. Like, if the casino could even sense that you're doing that in some sort of way, they'll probably keep a close eye on you. And if you start making too much money, they might just kick you out. Yeah. And I guess, is there a version of that that has shifted to being more automated just because it can even out some of that very shifted odds? Like if you play poker has now shifted to being electronic because all of the cards are reshuffled every time. Yeah, and I mean, like, even with some of the slot machine games, like if you're playing a video poker, there's definitely a slight bit of skill to that because um, I guess I'll just explain, like, a very simple, like, 
how poker games work on a slot machine cabinet. You're dealt a hand of five cards, and then from those five cards, you get to pick how many of those cards you want to hold. And if you're playing, like, well, let's just say, for example, we're playing what's called, like, a three-hand poker, then with those three cards that you keep, you sort of duplicate that into three different hand draws. And then for the cards that you discarded, you draw new cards independently of one another for each of those three hands. And based off of, like, uh, the different, like, patterns you do, like, if you get, like, a straight or royal flush, that's where you could have, um, well, larger wins. So if you have, like, an idea of what cards are better to hold versus redraw, then you somewhat have an advantage to that. But, I mean, there's still so much randomness around that that it probably isn't that big of a difference depending on which cards you hold. But, I mean, definitely, like, if you're dealt, like, five aces and then you just discard those, like, that definitely lowers your odds of winning. Yeah, you've de- you've uh, you've kind of uh, screwed yourself, for lack of a better term there. Yeah. But, yeah, but, if you... I mean, like, it still isn't fully within the realm of possibility of, like, for one of your hands. Like, if you discard all of your aces, still randomly drawing all those aces as opposed... But, I mean, it's still, like, a very minuscule chance of that happening. So, I mean, that's sort of where things like that kind of even out. Sure, like, if you knew... Uh, I, I don't know the actual odds, but if, like, three of a kind beats the average player hand on any given game you're obviously going to try and discard toward that instead of playing every game and trying to discard up to a royal flush. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think with things like that, I mean, I don't know, like, the actual, like, strategies to, like, being a professional poker slot machine player, but, like, at least as someone who knows a little bit of statistics, like, trying to do things like um, holding cards for, like, a straight versus just doing a, like, two of or like a two of a kind or a three of a kind sort of seemed like a more high risk high reward strategy just because if you're trying to make like a straight there's only a few certain cards within the deck that would actually make that outcome happen versus you have much higher odds of making a two of a kind or three of a kind with your cards sorry i was just trying to look through my list of questions and make sure i uh i'm asking everything because i tend to jump quite a bit Oh, no, yeah, and for me, yeah, it's just sort of, like, very, like, scatter shotgun answers sometimes. <laughs> of course, I try and I try and jump within reason to the next thing, but uh, sometimes I, I take some heavy skews. Interviewing's hard. It is, and I am hopefully getting better at it over time. Yeah, no, I'd say, like, definitely so far it's, like, been very well. Like, this is probably something that could have worked for, like, a live sort of audience just because we've had like a, a constant flow and like not really any like major awkward silences other than what just happened because we were just trying to like catch up on your questions yeah just huge dead air yeah and i mean that's been like we've been going for like what 45 minutes now uh yeah it's been a while i was gonna jump backwards just because i assume there's a lot more work from home given the um especially during the time of the lockdowns and such. Did you used to travel at all before this, or have you kind of always worked from, like, a remote facility? So, at least for the work that I've done, it's been, well, before the pandemic was 100%, like, in office, which is the same, like, corporate office that, yeah, you just keep going to. Like, there isn't 
at least on my specific role, there might be some like very one-off cases where if there's like an issue within like one of the casinos or field and it's like one of the ones like local to me in Reno, they might like say, hey, you should drive out to this casino and see this issue to see if you know anything about it sort of thing. But like the only case that I've seen where at least people like within my department have been like flown out to places is for, I believe it was a lawsuit about like the outcome of a specific game. And we pretty much flew out one of our mathematicians to like mathematically prove that their argument was invalid or something like that. (laughs) Could you imagine being like, oh, I'm upset that I lost this game. And then someone flies out a mathematician and you're like, oh, this is going to be a bad argument. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Yeah. Like so, and like this guy is like, at least the main mathematician we have for our company is someone who I think has been working at IG for like 15 plus years as like the main math person for like our platform. So he's just like a, a very smart person and has like very interesting stories about like the, the math behind slot machine games and was like a part of a lot of like the evolution of that. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, which probably with none of that, I'd be able to really talk too much on, but it's just like, yeah, being inside the, the non-compete in NDAs, it's very interesting. Yeah. I try, um, I try very hard not to ask any questions that are going to get you in any trouble. Is there, like, in within your company, obviously there's departments like his, is there a lot of other departments that always have, like, this is their next big project and everyone's working, you know, on their own thing, or does everyone work more kind of all on one project? At least for my department, like, we all work on what we call the same platform, which is sort of like the the slot machine ecosystem. But because IGT itself is sort of like a big enough company, we also have like multiple platforms that we support. But at least ours is like the majority stakeholder of the company and releases the most games and sells the most cabinets. But we do have like some, at least from, uh, what's a good word for it, sort of how the company has picked up like other smaller companies or merged with other big companies over the years. There's sort of been like a divide in some technology and just sort of having to maintain the things that are already out there and at that point might as well continue to release games for those platforms sort of things. I see. So like, so uh, yeah, go ahead. The, the guidebook is just getting ever larger. Yeah. And even like for the platform that I work on, we even have like very special like variants of it that we release like in the Australian markets versus the like domestic US markets. Uh, do you tend to see, I don't know if this is a thing you know necessarily, but do you tend to see like a higher a higher percentage of use in different countries? At least for myself, I mean, definitely like every once in a while, like uh, my director would sort of send out like um, pretty much like field reports of how games are doing. But it's not one of those things I necessarily pay too much attention to. But I mean, there's definitely some markets that have like very loyal customer bases i guess you could call it like um i believe in eastern canada sort of like in the ontario area they have like a very specific market that likes very specific games that for whatever reason like get like 50 percent more money in than like the average of most other places (laughs) wow has uh has working in this kind of i don't know if before now but has working in the field 
given you like a greater incentive to go play or have you steered further away from it since starting where you work? So yeah, I mean, at least when I first started working at the company is right when I turned 21, which is also like the legal gambling age for Nevada. So I didn't have like that much background in it, but it was never one of those things I've been like very interested in doing anyways. And the more that you understand the math behind the game, at least for myself, it makes me just not want to play it even more. Yeah. You're like, I make my money making these games. I don't want to spend my money playing these games. Yeah, pretty much like that. And if I were to gamble in a casino, I'd rather do it in ways where I have a better understanding of the odds because I was like what we're saying with the different like casino games, unless I like knew the like game developers or saw like the the payback percentage documents for that game like i wouldn't know if i had a better chance playing like the kitty glitter game versus like the buffalo bill or whatever like random game title but if i were to gamble it would be probably something that's more of like a, a table game uh more like specifically roulette because you sort of know the odds of what you're betting and exactly what your outcome will be if you do that. So if you do get lucky, like playing roulette and like betting on red three times in a row and somehow like uh, eight times in your money over that, like, sure, that's cool. But you at least know exactly what the odds are. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, if I bet on black, I should win almost 50% of the time. Yep. But good old roulette wheels likes to have those uh, zeros and double zeros that are green which uh, skews the odd in the casino's favor so it's actually a um i think most of them are 52 slots so it's a uh 25 and 52 chance that if you were to bet on black to double up your money to win it i, so I mean you, it's you just bet on betting. black and odd and then just run the odds <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah which at least for those because they're sort of um independent to one another it's just sort of like making theoretically you would make the same money from just putting even more money on black (laughs) right yeah i uh i had somebody tell me once that that was their system to win was they're like oh i just exclusively bet on you know black and odd and they're like because there's a a 50 percent chance i don't lose any money and a 25 percent chance i make double my money and i'm like but isn't there also a 25 percent plus chance that you just lose it all and they're like yeah Yeah. i'm like okay so it's the same (laughs) yeah well it's sort of like yeah well and it's also not exactly 50 percent odds that you even make any money because it's actually slightly under that because of the um the 25 and 52 percent odds (laughs) right the greens yep greens are what get you and and pretty much unless there's like some very random things happening in like the betting of a roulette game. Usually when there's a green as the final spot for the ball, nobody wins. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's like, ah, it never happens until right now. (laughs) And yep. Unless you're that one guy that like always bets like a dollar on it or something. That's wild. Um, Is there such a thing as a pro slots player? Um, I don't, I've never come into contact with one. I know there's definitely people who, if you look at their tax returns on slot games, they could either win a lot of money or lose a lot of money. And then you're also surprised as to how much money they gave to the casinos over the the tax year. Yeah. Is there a write-off on that? 
If you like, just um, lose tons of money in gambling, can you write that off? I don't know if there's a write-off, but you definitely get taxed if you make certain thresholds for how big of a win that you make in a casino. Because, like, I think generally if you win under, like, I don't know what the threshold is, it's probably different per jurisdiction, but let's just say, like, you win under $500, like, you don't get, like, any special tax paperwork other than, like, if you tie it into your, like, player card and then the casino at the end of the tax year gives you a document saying this is how much money you put in and out i think you could get taxed on that but the other things that i think have a special additional attacks on top of that are for like the larger wins so if you were to like go to a casino and win a jackpot of like five thousand dollars i'm fairly certain that gets taxed as um non-work income so like effectively the same as like if you were to make a money off the stock market or something like that where, like, if you make that win, like, you pretty much, like, one of the casino attendants, like, walks up to you and, like, gives you tax documentation paperwork that you have to fill in. Oh, God. You're like, yeah, I won big. And then somebody walks up and they're like, and here's your tax form. Yep. <laughs> no. And, yep. And the U.S. government will be taking uh, approximately 35% of that. Oh, wow. God. That's like flipping a house. I know they told me when I bought my house, they're like, don't sell it for two years because otherwise the government's going to take, you know, 35% of your house. Yeah. Like, oh, no. Man, speaking of buying houses, that is something that even as a senior software engineer in living in Reno, it is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I especially if you're uh, you're the, the single income kind of uh, a household, that's yep. going to be very difficult. Yep, because it's, like, funny, for a while there, like, the down payment that I was saving up was getting surpassed by the market increase. <laughs> oh, God. And effectively, the way that I was able to make up for that was by doing some fairly risky stock market plays, but they ended up working out, and I had more than enough down payment for a house and the income to be able to support the mortgage. <laughs> I said you gamble it all on AMC, take it to the moon. Uh, no, it was actually, for me, it was surprisingly uh, Tesla, and um, I think my second highest performer was, like, randomly, like, Monster Energy. Oh, neat. So the, the boomer juice got me the house. <laughs> yeah, I remember looking at Tesla when it was, like, $300 a share, and I was like, man, that's too expensive. I can't afford this. And then you look yeah. at it now, and you're way over that. Oh, I should have yeah. bought it at 300 <laughs> Yeah, because when I bought into Tesla originally, I think it was in the 300 range, and that was before they did their, like, stock splits as well, so it ended up working out pretty well, even though, like, in hindsight, I wish I put more money into it, but that was one of the things where, like, I didn't know that Tesla would explode that much. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if they knew that either, but I have heard that they give uh, employees stock as part of their retirement portfolio. So uh, no one around there has been complaining. Yeah, well, actually, uh, well, funnily enough, in Reno, we have a uh, gigafactory sort of like uh, 15 minutes like outside of town. So I know like a few people who are, yeah, literally in that same situation. But they also, I, I don't know the exact business practice around this. So I don't, I, I mean, it might sound shady, or shady than it actually is. And I don't know if this is because the person that I know that works at Tesla doesn't understand investing very much but it seems like he cashes out a lot on a lot of the tesla stock that he's getting 
So I don't know if that's part of like the the policy of like getting more stock or if he just would want the money now as opposed to making more money off of it in the future. <laughs> yeah, that's hard to say because I know there's uh, there's a handful of companies out there that will give like cash bonuses into your retirement. And some people will just pull those immediately because they, they're like, ah, I can invest this better than you can, so I'm going to go ahead and take the hit just to, uh, you know, make my own money. Yeah, because I think at least for what I have in terms of, like, retirement plan is it's like the, the company 401k and then the company matches up to a certain percentage of your salary that you put into it and then you could just put in more if you want. So, yeah, same thing. Do you trust yourself managing the 401k or the company? Yeah, I, I have both. In my, uh, I have my retirement, which I think is almost entirely in Vanguard. And then I have like a, you know, me playing around in the stock market. And I couldn't tell you that one does better for any good reason than the other. Yep. So I can tell you that one gets taxed a lot more than the other one. <laughs> yes, I am sure it does. <laughs> so outside of that, if you say you're able to re- work remotely indefinitely, um, you think you'd stay in Reno? Um, I'd say at this point, I've fairly rooted myself into it. Like, definitely, well, obviously with, like, buying a house in the area, too, it sort of ingrains you even more. But uh, in terms of myself, like, it's, I'd say the Reno area is, like, it's fairly nice. Um, I mean, definitely there's a lot of, like, the outside perception that, like, Reno is basically, like, the the white trash version of, like, uh, Vegas, which in, in some aspects it it is. But, I mean, there's definitely... That's more of, like, the downtown, like, area with all the casinos and everything, but there's a lot of, like, outside of downtown that's, like, very nice places in Reno, and sort of the location works well for me because you're, like, right next to Lake Tahoe, so it's, like, 30-minute drive, and I'm at, like, some of the, like, top ski resorts in the nation sort of thing. Yeah, I know uh, when I came down for our buddy's wedding, uh, it was the first time I'd ever been to Reno, and I didn't realize that Reno was made up of, like, smaller cities inside of one giant area. Because he gave yeah. me the address, like, oh yeah, I live in Sparks. And I'm like, where is Sparks? He's like, it's just Reno. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, funny thing about that. Like, I don't know if you've ever, like, watched the this show Reno 911. Yes. So one of the episodes for that is like a, a funny confrontation between the, the Reno PD and Sparks PD, where they like basically have like this jurisdiction, which is just like a bridge across the highway. And they sort of have like turf war, like battles across that, <laughs> which is pretty much like how I'd imagine it is with like Reno and Sparks. So, and I think like some people are trying to use like the terminology, like the greater Reno area, but I mean, just call it Reno. Yeah, just call it Reno. <laughs> unless you, yeah, unless you're like, well, I mean, well, it's funny too because technically I'm moving to Sparks as well, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not gonna like tell people like, yeah, I live in Sparks because like, where the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, it's a, it's really nice. I mean, I can't speak to the, uh, the casino part necessarily, but you know, hearing like, oh, it's this, you know, white trash area, like as compared to the regular Vegas trash, or. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, it's sort of like not as the like the general perception is sort of like the not like high roller like Vegas type of people. It's sort of like the much more great value side of that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've been to Vegas and uh, 
if you're not like in the the hot you know the strip or whatever like it's not really where i'd want to be yeah i mean yeah at least for me i haven't been to vegas and i don't even know how many well i guess technically i went to vegas for a work trip but not like actually going to the strip or anything i was like working at one of the corporate offices down there like doing a training for some engineers so i guess i have been to vegas in the past like five years but not vegas vegas <laughs> yeah not to not the fun vegas <laughs> yep because when i was there i didn't do anything while i was not working i pretty much just went back to my hotel and went back to sleep because i was doing like eight hours of um training up engineers on how to use a platform <laughs> nice so after that you're like i'm gonna go coma <laughs> yeah no i uh, i enjoyed sparks um and i don't know if this is like just the the inner fat kid in me but uh it's also the only place i've ever been that has a scoopers and scoopers is like fantastic for milkshakes yeah and I, like i've definitely been to there but i don't really know if it's like just a reno thing or if it's like actually a, a chain because i know there's two of them i could know i know of in reno but yeah i've never seen that anywhere else <laughs> Yeah, all I know is they don't have them up here, so I can't, you know, for a quarter add brownie batter to my my uh, ice cream. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, at least for me, I grew up in Alaska, so I mean, there's definitely a, not a lot of, like, I guess, like, national chain food options up there. And I remember the first time I ever went to a Del Taco, I was amazed that I could buy tacos and french fries in the same order. <laughs> You're like, what? These are two different foods. Yep. Oh, but nope. It's like probably the most American restaurant we have. That's funny. Or sort of like Panda Express being American food. Right. Anyway, I I appreciate your time. I know I've I've kept you in here for like uh, over an hour for something. I'm gonna cut all this down a bit, but um, I appreciate you doing the interview. Yeah. No worries. It's definitely a pretty fun process because this is like. The first time I've any done anything that's more like podcasty, just because myself, like I've done, started doing more streaming of uh, tabletop games like uh, Warhammer Forty Thousand, and it's definitely, I'd say, I can see the similarities, but definitely see like how podcasting is like very content driven. <laughs> yeah, I definitely I've had a lot of fun with it. As little as I've done, I've still enjoyed quite a bit. If you want, just go ahead and give a plug for your uh, streaming. Uh, yeah, so I stream on ch- Twitch, and the channel that I stream off of is called Nevada Ultimate Tabletop, which, if you acronym that out, is NUT. <laughs> which, yeah, um, I mean, it was definitely like a, a fun play on words and stuff, but yeah, it's uh, at least myself and uh, the gaming group that I have in, uh, here in northern Nevada, we decided we wanted to like try to get more exposure to like some of the tournaments that we're running. So like in uh, June, we ran our first large scale tournament, which was um, like a 40 player tournament, which we streamed on Twitch. And uh, yeah, we're definitely planning more events in the future and maybe just doing more like one-off games, just like um, playing at home as opposed to at like a large tournament and trying to be more on the uh, competitive side towards the uh, streaming experience too, like explaining why we make certain decisions within the game and things like that. No, oh, that's awesome. I would, uh, obviously I'm a, a very large nerd, so I would say everyone should go check it out. Um, 
I will need to be re-downloading Twitch so I can check it out. Because that's very interesting to me and I've never played. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting because, like, I well, the way that I know you, Colton, is uh, through uh, playing D&D, which is, I'd say, has a lot of uh, similarities to tabletop, but just in, like, a lot more of a role-playing way. But, I mean, from what I've seen with your character, it seems like you like to do a bit of the min-maxing. It's, uh, it's definitely a weird one in the game we currently play, because I would say it is, like, I did not intentionally balance out my skills very well. And then I just started choosing class stuff at random, and it has happened to work out very well in this instance. Um, yep. I've, I've played on both ends, though. I've got a good amount of history okay. into D&D, so I've played very unoptimized characters that are very bad, and they typically die very fast. Uh, and I've also played some that are equally unbalanced in the powerful aspect. Yeah, and sort of with that, too, like... I'd say most players who play Warhammer tend to be more on the optimized side, but there's definitely like a very thriving community more on like the narrative side of the games as well. Because I mean, with how much time you're spending like building and painting the models and like building the terrain for everything, like, yeah, there's definitely like a bit of a narrative aspect to that, even if you're playing a more competitive game and sort of like what gets you sucked into it. Sure. Yeah. No, I will have to check it out. Maybe at some point I'll get involved. I'll have to drive down. But I'd love to get involved. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, because, yeah, Mark's going to be uh, moving down here soon, so yeah, I've even more reason to come back to Arena, right? Right. I'll have Maybe I'll have you back on with uh, with some of your, your nut partners to, uh, <laughs> to uh, talk about Warhammer, because I am sure yeah. it has a massive amount of lore and story and everything else, and aside from just the strategy-based part of it that I'm sure most people do not know anything about. Yep, it's definitely, like... Well, it's funny, like, when I stream games of Warhammer 40k, it feels like the type of, like, content that would go on, like, ESPN 8, the Ocho, the Ocho. like, from the yeah. uh, Dodgeball movie. Right. And, like, next up, we have the Warhammer 40,000 tournament after this, uh... U.S. Open dodgeball competition. Right. Interesting play, Cotton. Let's see how it goes. Uh, well, anyway, thank you again for doing this. Um, as I try and ask with everyone, uh, would you recommend a career in software engineering? I would say if you're the type of person that's willing to put into the effort for it, I'd say it's definitely a very good path to take. But I mean, definitely software engineering is not for everyone. And if you're someone who doesn't like looking at a computer screen for eight plus hours a day might not be for you, <laughs> but it's something you've enjoyed doing uh, yeah. thus far. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there are like ways to software engineering where it isn't just always looking at a computer screen. There's a lot more of like the, the people and management side to that, or even like the project and product management where it's a lot more of a communicative and job as opposed to just strictly engineering, but still, related to the industry awesome all right well thank you again and uh we'll close out this episode and see everybody next time uh thank you again all right thank you too and it's uh definitely a fun show hope to be on again sometime talking about my other nerdy side of course hey everybody thanks for listening to the show i hope you've enjoyed it if you have please reach out tell family co-workers friends anything uh to listen to it I would greatly appreciate any support you can give us. 
If you've really enjoyed it, you could go on to Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Just leave a good review. Um, maybe if it's really funny, I'll read it on the show. I enjoy good humor. Um, or if you have a good dumb example, I'll, maybe I'll read that too. Uh, otherwise, if you want to reach out to us, I'm on social media, Dumb Enough Podcast, pretty much everywhere. Or you could reach out at dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for guests or questions for guests or just want to chat, reach out to me there. I'll get a hold of you. All right. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.